Good morning. Congratulations. You made it. Somewhat sleep deprived. You have an opportunity for kindness, maybe, on the way out as people start coming in. You can avoid sarcasm and cattiness and talk to them about what time it actually is, not what time they thought it was. Time change Sunday. This teaching series that we're in, which is illustrated by this table over here, called Table Talk. This table represents the spiritual family that our church is. And to get an idea of how the younger people in a family understand their place in it, we went over to our church's preschool and had a little table talk with a couple kids. Check this table talk out. Who are your friends? I don't know. My friend's name is Gloria. And my name is Tyler. Caleb. Adrian, Seth, and Caleb. Chloe and Gracia. If your friends were in trouble, how would you help them? You pick them up. You pick them up. With the teacher. They understand more than you think, you know. If one of your friends is in trouble, it probably means that the teacher is in trouble too. This table represents people who are in search of God and they're following him. When Jesus called people to be his disciples... It literally meant his apprentices, his learners. He said to his first disciples, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So what a disciple is, is someone who is following Jesus, who is continually being changed by Jesus. They're not the person they used to be. You heard Katie refer to that earlier. Lights coming on, everything starting to change, presenting herself in a different way. Why does that happen? Because you're following Jesus now, and the effect of following him and knowing him is changing you. Jesus also said, I will make you fishers of men. In other words, I'll change your vocation. I'll change what your life's about. He was saying that to his first disciples. They were going to help other people follow Jesus too. This table pictures all that. If you've been here for a few weeks, you'll remember at least two of these chairs. If you haven't been here at all, welcome. Really glad that you came. Some of you came to see Katie baptized. Some of you are here also for Alyssa. We're thrilled about that. Here's what the table represents. Every chair, as you can see, is different because it represents a different stage in the spiritual journey of following Jesus. This first chair represents someone that Jesus himself would call spiritually dead. They don't know Jesus at all. They're welcomed at God's table. They're invited to follow him. He loves them. He has spoken to them. He is showing himself to them, but they don't know it. Dead people are insensitive. They're unaware. What is most true about someone who is dead is they are dead and they don't know it. Where are you getting all this? Jesus met the most religious man of his day, a man named Nicodemus, part of the legendary Pharisees. Nicodemus started off with a compliment 
He said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God was with him. And Jesus came right back with the fastball. He didn't even thank him for the compliment. He didn't even acknowledge the truth of what Nicodemus is saying to him. Do you remember what Jesus said? You must be born again. See, religion invites you to work your way out of this chair. Religion invites you to find the rules and to follow them. Jesus says that's pointless. It's fruitless. You can't follow the rules. You're spiritually separated from God. You're spiritually dead. What you need is to be born again. And when people are born again, they are... We're going to have a really long day if you don't talk back to me, okay? 9 a.m. service was tired too. I'm tired. I was really wondering whether I was going to call somebody else in last night and text to one of the pastors. I'm feeling as sick as a dog. Hope you have something ready. But I'm here, so come on now. People who are born are, they're babies. And babies bring a lot of joy to the family, but they are the most dependent members in the family. They require the most care. They require constant feeding. They don't need steak. They're not ready for Morton's. They need milk. They need to grow up. They need new truth. They need new habits. They need someone to share life with them so that they can grow. And if they're cared for and if they're loved and if they hear the truth, babies turn into children. And here's a battered high chair which weathered many, many children. And they must have been really hungry because there are teeth marks on this thing. If you could see what I can see. Children, if they, are continue, if they are cared for and supported and given opportunities, children, if all is well, turn into young adults. And young adults eventually become parents and sit at the head of the table and have a loving responsibility and a heart for everyone else that's seated at the table with them. I've been telling you about these first two chairs the last couple of weeks. Today we're going to talk about spiritual children. And my invitation to you was not, would be not to assume which chair you're in. The most encouraging thing about this series, the part I least expected, but that has most impressed me and moved me that God is at work in our church, is a good number of people who have turned themselves in, unsolicited, completely unknown to me, and said things like, I, I realized I was spiritually dead. I've been in church, but I don't have spiritual life. Someone texted me and said, I've been an infant for 30 years, but I'd never asked for help. That kind of humility, when God shows you that and you identify and say, that's where I'm seated and I need to own it and then I can move forward, that's God's work in your life. So don't assume anything based on status or how long you've been here or how many Bible courses you've taken. I'll talk to you about that in a second. Just open yourself up to the idea that you're at this table somewhere, find yourself and ask Jesus who wants you to grow and wants, as you've just been singing, he really wants to be Lord of all. That's parent talk. A parent, a fully formed disciple who is following Jesus faithfully says it all belongs to him. I'm not holding anything back. Everything I have, he has given me, and it all belongs to him. I hold it with an open hand and give it back to him for his purposes. That's what parents do. Children, as we'll discuss, 
Not so much. What effect do children have on the family table? Well, they bring a lot of joy. When a kid starts developing, it makes the family rejoice. Pictures get passed around. Baby's first steps are videotaped and blown up all over social media. Ordinary things that don't cause anybody to be excited about me in my 40s make people absolutely applaud when it's a little kid doing it. You buttoned your shirt. Little children bring joy. Listen to the Apostle John in his third letter talk to some Christians that he had got a good report about. He said, I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you were walking in the truth. Catch this. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You hear how fatherly that is? He was worried about them, but somebody came and gave him a report about these Christians. We don't know exactly who these people are, but John knew them. Obviously, he was concerned about them. Someone else came and said, it's real for them. They're walking it out. They're not just saying it. It's not head knowledge. It's not mere intellect. They are walking in the truth. One of the Bible studies I was taught when I was younger was to look for the repetition of words in a passage. What is John most concerned about here in this short little paragraph? What word keeps coming back up? Truth. Did you catch it? They testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And what he's talking about is their relationship with Jesus. And if it's your first time in church or your first time in a long time and you're here and kind of okay with it but not super excited about it, let me tell you the most important thing I could ever share with you about Jesus. Before Jesus ever claimed to be helpful, he claimed to be true. You can find countless books at the bookstore that tell you that Jesus is helpful, and he is. But it's much more important than that. Jesus is not only helpful, he is true. He is a true person who spoke the truth about spiritual life. That's why he said shortly before dying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Think about how personal and categorical that is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Can you imagine if I showed up here next Sunday and said, church, I have an announcement. I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. What would you do? Psychiatric care, right? Uh, if you were feeling compassionate. Several people gave me the umpire thumbs out. You're absolutely right. Jesus claimed to be able to do a great many things for people. He fed them. He healed them. He restored sight to blind people. But what all of that pictured was the absolute fundamental truthfulness of Jesus. So when a spiritual infant is born into God's family, it's because they were moved out of this chair, which they cannot work their way out of. Jesus came to them. He showed them his truthfulness. He showed how true he is. And he brought them by a new spiritual birth, not by their religious effort, but by his grace, by his forgiveness, he brought them into God's family. And John says, when I hear that my children 
are walking in the truth, nothing gives me greater joy. That's what infants need. People who have just been born into God's family need truth in large doses. They've been lied to all of their spiritual lies. It, lives. it was lies that put them in this chair. Now Jesus, the truth, is showing himself to them and showing them the truth of who he is. That's why I was so excited that so many of you went to the Just for Starters class at 9 o'clock. That's outstanding. What you're going to hear there are the basic truths of Jesus and the scripture that tells us about him. Congratulations. Good for doing that. When you have that truth and you start walking it out, it will move in your life. And Jesus himself, not effort, not new habits, Jesus himself will move you around the table. So what is this spiritual season like? It's amazing, really, how carefully, how closely the physical analogy of children and young adults and parents matches the spiritual realities that the Bible teaches us. What is the spiritual stage of childhood like? Will you tell me, what is the defining characteristic of kids? What are they about? What is true about children that is no longer true about young adults? They are they're selfish. They're all about them. You have these conversations with little children. Why did he get the blue plate? I want the blue plate. It's my turn to have the blue plate. No, honey, remember, it's Tuesday. It's your brother's turn to have the blue plate. Some of you are laughing because you've had this very conversation. Maybe not about a blue plate, but about something. An infant is, they're simply unaware. They don't know. A child now knows the truth. They know some things. They're starting to find their place in the family And the characteristic of the child stage is children like it their way. This is why new truth, new habits for children are so important to move them away from that essential selfishness. Children are also overconfident and underconfident, sometimes all at the same time, sometimes within two minutes. Overconfidence looks like this. Spiritually speaking, the most obnoxious person on earth is a first-year Bible college student. That's harsh. Well, I, I was one. I know the tribe, and I know it well because I'm part of it. The summer between my first year in secular university and Bible college, when I started training for ministry, God did some really painful things in my life. Tragedy overcame a friend of mine that made me stand at his grave and think about eternity. And God kind of wrenched my eyes off myself, I thought, onto him and the needs of other people. And I really started looking for Jesus' will in the Bible. And I read the New Testament that summer like it was my job. And in my overconfidence, I thought this. After reading through the New Testament a few times, I thought... Okay, I think God wants me to go to Bible college and be a pastor, but I've read this. I wonder what they could teach me. That was the honest fear. I hope I don't waste four years being taught stuff I already know. Can you imagine? That's overconfidence. And that is characteristic of children. 
That's why children in general, boys in particular, have to be watched so they don't ride the Hot Wheels thing off the roof. Because they saw it on a video and it looked cool and this is what we're doing. They are overconfident sometimes to their harm. Children are also underconfident. What I'm trying to tell you is, spiritually speaking, when you're in the child stage, you are prone to two kinds of opposite things. Children are prone to pride on the one hand and hopelessness on the other. Someone who just trusted Christ very often can turn into a nodal. And they take those three things that Jesus has taught them and they berate other people who don't know them yet. How many kids in my Bible college went up to correct the teacher after he was done? With absolutely nothing to correct him over, they just didn't know it yet. There's pride there. And they also tend to make rules regarding their own convictions and their own preferences about the way things should be, and they make that the faithful expression of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's Phariseeism. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for teaching as in place of the words of God, he said, you impose on people the traditions of men. You have your own brand of spirituality, of how things should look, of what external appearances cause people to admire you and make you think that you're a godly, holy person who's walking along with Jesus. In my Bible college, and I could tell you stories all day, the culture we were in became very focused on the externals and the way we dressed, the way you looked, particularly if you wore the right kind of coat and tie, the right brand of Bible, the right kind of thickness, the right kind of cover. If you were really serious as a man, women were allowed to mess around with it a little bit more, but if you were serious about Jesus in my college, you had a black Bible. It was blue, it just don't, you know. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just worried about where it could lead. (laughs) Next thing you know, there's a sticker on the outside cover, and then where are we? It's that kind of thing. One of my roommates had paisley socks. Bear with me. This is the late 80s. He had paisley socks, and that caused a small scandal in some parts of our community because that just wasn't done. And listen, here's the point. As Paul told the Colossians in his letter, all of those external regulations were completely powerless to change the interior of our heart. We found out the hard way that sometimes people who had all the external I's dotted and all the T's crossed were burning up with lust and greed and anger and fear just like the rest of us. And all of that external focus, which is the signature not of following Jesus, but of man-made religion, did nothing to change the inside. It was Phariseeism. But what it led to was spiritual pride and a condescension and arrogance regarding people who didn't feel that way. What I'm trying to tell you is this kind of legalism is not spiritual maturity. It's actually childishness. That's what kids do to make sense of their world. They make up all kinds of rules of their own devising to make sense of the world and to make it comfortable for themselves. Things that their father never taught them. Things that actually do no good. The other side of that pride, the other side of the spectrum is hopelessness. 
One of the reasons Paul wrote the Thessalonians and many other epistles, once you know to look for it, he is continually writing back to Christians who are starting to suffer as Christians to reassure them that this is normal. Because one of the things that is true about kids is not only can they get all puffed up with pride, with an I do it kind of mentality, but they can also succumb to hopelessness. You ever see a five-year-old drop their ice cream cone? I mean, it is just the absolute end of the world. How many times when my boys were growing up did I run into the room because there was this blood-curdling scream and I thought to myself, they are in the process of dying. I must go rescue them right now. And what happened? I dropped my sandwich. He took my toy. This... and. And, and now, now that I know you're okay, I really want to hurt you, right? Because I'm, s- <laughs> my heart's coming out of my mouth. I was so afraid you were not long for this world. And now I found you're freaking out over all that. I can make you another sandwich. Come on. <laughs> okay. Now there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's part of the, it's part of the stage. One of the things that I'm convinced the devil loves to do with Christians in the childlike phase is to come alongside them when they are suffering and whisper to them that God does not love them. He never gives up on that tactic. Even when you're a parent, he wants to drag you back into the childish phase and tell you if God really existed, if God were both loving and powerful, you would not hurt like this. Hopelessness. Both of those things are overcome when a child realizes that their father's love and the Savior's will for them is always good, even when it hurts. This is why the book of Acts tells us that Paul and his companions went back into a city. They had just evangelized and started discipling people. It says they they comforted and encouraged and stabilized the disciples, telling them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Hurting and pain in the Christian life is absolutely normal. You may have seen in the news this morning, reports are so hard to come from because it's a closed society, but it appears to be true that the North Korean government has executed some 30 Christians simply for being Christians. Why is that happening? Because suffering in the Christian life, except for the bubble of America, is ordinary. And one of the great, great challenges for the American church, for you and me, is that suffering for Jesus is so rare and so exceptional. When it comes, it makes us have a childish fear that God is not real. That God has abandoned us, that his promises aren't true. That's why John was rejoicing that his little children were walking in the truth. A final thought about this childish this childlike season that everybody moves through, this is the season of life where for the first time there is interdependence with the person who is helping them grow in Christ. When someone is just born into the family of God, it's all give on the part of the spiritual parent and the person who is helping them find and follow Jesus. By the time they get to this chair, there's some exchanging, there's some interdependence. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12. And in fact, I'd like you to read that with me. Just use the outline so we can all read the same thing. 
1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Got it? Listen to the fatherly conversation that Paul is going to have with these brand new Christians whom he only personally knew for the space of three weeks. Read with me. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul is saying, you remember, you saw for yourself how well we behaved when we were with you. And listen to the parenting words in verse 12. He says, we encouraged, we comforted, and we implored each one of you to walk worthy of God. There's some life on life there. There's some give and take. Christian encouragement is when that spiritual parent gets down on his knee and puts his arm around the kid's skinny little shoulders and says, listen, you can do this. Don't be afraid. Let's go. You're in God's family now. It's entirely normal that the people in this city are turning against you now. You've walked away from idols. That's what the Thessalonians had done according to the first chapter. And it was fearful, and it cost them families, and it cost them friendships. It likely cost some of them their jobs. What did they need there? They needed some encouragement. What else did he say he did? Look at the second verb. He encouraged, and he did what? He comforted. That's coming alongside a child who has no perspective, doesn't know a sense of time, and the ebbs and flows of the dropped ice cream cone, and that, yes, you can recover many of these things, They need to be given some hope. They need to be given some comfort. And Paul says, we implored each one of you to walk worthy of God. That is spiritual parenting. Paul, as their spiritual father on earth, is looking back across the table saying, this is how we live in this family. You're old enough to understand me now. This is the way we're going to do it in our spiritual family. Did you ever give your kids those talks? But my friends, I don't care about your friends. Your friends don't live here. I'm not your friend's dad. I'm your dad. And in our family, this is how we do it. This is what Paul is doing here. So how do we help children grow? I told you last week, in the baby phase, it's all about sharing. You share truth. You share new habits. You share your very life. With the child, it's a different task. It's all about helping them connect. Who does a child need to connect to? A child needs to connect, first of all, with his own heavenly father. A spiritual child needs to learn how to connect to God. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is a pretty tough little passage. And you should know, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but most Christian scholars who have studied the Bible book of Hebrews understand it as a sermon. Okay, It's a letter, but it's written out as a sermon. So you can imagine someone assembling Christians and teaching them the scriptures. And I want you to see him try to call them out a little painfully out of this childlike phase by telling them, by now you should be connected to God yourself. You shouldn't need the kind of help and support we've been giving you. You should be past that now. Check this out. 
We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. How'd you like if I started out with that on Sunday morning? I have a whole lot of things to teach you, but it's going to be tough because you're lazy. Now, you can't say that to a baby. A baby can't be challenged. A baby can't be called up to a higher level of maturity. A baby is a baby. They are completely dependent. A child is not. This is where the encouraging, the comforting, the convicting, the calling up, and the calling out starts. Check this out, verse 12. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation. Again, you need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Wow. What's he saying? You should be past the milk phase. Infants, as Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 2, infants need milk, but you should be past that now. You should know the basics about God. To make it very, very practical, growing up means that you learn to feed yourself. I can be more practical than that. And I'm not saying this, this isn't aimed at any single one of you. I just want to show you a spiritual standard that is true for me as much as it is for you. If your main spiritual nourishment, your main teaching from God's word comes primarily on Sunday mornings, you're malnourished. Simple as that. Imagine... A family that only served a meal on Sunday morning. Big old heaping portions, eat all you want, but no more food until next Sunday. What would those kids be like? They'd be weak. They'd be diseased. They would be vulnerable. They would be constantly in danger of being, frankly, pulled into other families who would offer them different kinds of things. What everyone does when they move into this chair and start going into young adult, the distinguishing characteristic is now a child is learning to feed himself. That is connecting to God. That is going on beyond the basics that you were taught as a newborn in God's family and feeding yourself. What else does a child need to learn? A child not only needs to know what it, who his heavenly father is, a child needs to begin to discover his purpose in life. Those of you who have kids will understand this very well. When you have children, they don't know it, but you're studying them. And you're trying to figure out, how did God make this particular kid? Why is he here on earth? What is he born to do? And one of the great joys in a parent's life is when their child discovers something that they love and something that they're good at. And suddenly they don't need encouragement. Now they just need opportunity. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Will you read that with me, please? The Bible says... For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Stop right there. That's spiritual birth. You were born into God's family. You were brought into God's family. You're one of his adopted kids. 
You've got the new birth because of his grace. You can't work your way out of the dead chair. He does all that. But look at verse 10. It now explains what you're to do in the family. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. Let's do a little Bible study. Why did God create you in Christ? Good works. Why are you in God's family? For? I know it was early this morning, but come on now. You are, verse 10, we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good good works. And then, just so we can't miss it, it's repetitive. Which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. That verse is bursting with spiritual potential for you. It says that before you were even in God's family, when you were still seated here and you didn't know him, your heavenly father loved you enough to prepare a life of good work so that you could walk them out. That's exciting. The the task of the person who is helping the child discover who he is, is to help him discover what those good works might be. Speaking only for myself, I knew for the first time in actual practical experience some of the things I could do for God and with God as a 16-year-old boy when an older man in our church came alongside, and I'll never forget it, I was standing outside our church 10 yards from the front door, and he just put his arm around me and encouraged me about something I had done. And I heard it from the church. I was wondering about it, but I was fearful about it. I didn't know if I was deluding myself or that was actually something I could be useful in. He saw it. He noticed it. God put it in his heart to share it with me. And here I am all these years later telling you about it. That's why we need each other. What sorts of things did the Father give you to fulfill your purpose? Well, he gives all his kids different measures of the same three elements. First of all, he gave you time. Paul wrote the Ephesians, we make the best, we make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now a child wants to use his time exclusively for himself. Ever try to get a kid to stop playing and help with the chores? I'll never forget, I went to pick up one of my boys at a friend's house, had been over there for six hours. And his friend said, we were just starting to have fun. That's, that's childishness right there. It's not his fault. Nothing wrong with it. It's just the season of life. We were just starting to have fun. My time belongs to me. It's for me. I don't want to give it to anybody else. Your heavenly father has given you time. If you're drawing breath this morning, it's because your heavenly father has prepared good works ahead of time so that you should walk in them. And if you can't look back over the last several weeks and months and point to the good work that you have done in your father's name with the time that he has given you, you're probably not on purpose. You're probably not walking in the fullness of his will. What else did he give you? He gave you some talent. He gave you spiritual resources. 
He gave you different things that he didn't give in that exact mix to anybody else that you can use to build other people up. He also gave you some treasure. What I mean by that is he gave you some money. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the child phase is they want to keep every good thing they have for themselves. One of the parents' jobs is to teach a kid to share. It's the same in God's family. God wants every one of his children to be givers. He wants you to share generously everything he has given you, your time, your talent, and also your treasure. I don't look into these matters at our church, but every study I've ever read as a pastor for 24 years of pastoring now tells me that 20% of the people in a church give 80% of its budget. Think about that. 20% of the people doing 80% of the giving. What does that mean? That the vast majority of church givers, at least when it comes to money, are somewhere in this stage right here. They're not really concerned about what is provided on the table, and there's nothing wrong with that. The tragedy is getting stuck right here. A child doesn't worry about it. When my boys were four years old, and to this day, the last thing I want for them is to be worried about money. I don't want them laying awake at night wondering if somebody's going to come kick us out of our house. Okay? If they're ever going to have enough to eat. But now that they're growing up, now that they're in their teenage years, I'm starting to teach them what we parents call old-fashionedly the value of a dollar. Why? Because I want them moving around the table because they are rapidly entering this stage. And when you enter that stage, you start contributing to the family. Children don't worry about how things are provided. They simply take them in and enjoy them. But if you're moving along in spiritual maturity, if you're moving into one of these two chairs, you're looking back at the rest of the family, including those who don't know Jesus yet, and you're asking these kinds of questions. Not, much, not how much do I have to give, but how much can I? How much time can I spare? How much can I help? How much can I love? How much can I come alongside? How much can I order my priorities and my budget and my entertainment to make as many resources available to the work of God's kingdom? Those are parents. Those are parent and young adult kinds of conversations, but growing up means giving. If you're growing up, you are increasingly a giver, and you give all of these things because Jesus really does want to be Lord of all. Finally, our task as a church, and this is practically a challenge for our church, we, we help kids in the child phase connect to a small group of people that they can grow up with. We connect them to a small group. This is implicit in early Christian life. This is part of what we've lost in church culture, which focuses primarily on Sunday morning. Read Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 with me, please. The Bible says, And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me point out some things that cannot happen 
in this atmosphere if this is all church is to you? Go back to that passage. This, a large group meeting, a public worship service with hundreds of people present is a difficult place for us to be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. The only way someone can tell me that they've been a spiritual infant for decades, what I know implicitly about that is that no one knew his life. That a church culture was created in which no one really knew what was going on in that man's life. That's the only way that happens. And the only way to break that down is in a closer, smaller relationship in a small group. Look at the end of verse 25. It says we are encouraging each other. We can't encourage each other in any personal direct way if this is all we do. Who's doing almost all the talking in this room? Me. Now, this is unequivocally part of God's plan. The early church met for the public teaching, and someone stood from the Scripture going back in the Old Testament and explained what God said. But it's not all it is. And in the American church, primarily taking our models from other worlds and often to feed the ego of the guy who does most of the talking, we've reduced it to this. And you can walk along in God's family with no personal encouragement, with no personal comfort, with no personal hope, unless unintentionally God in his grace moves in someone's heart to look out for you. What I'm talking about is our church doing all of these things, but on purpose. And having every person that comes to Crosspoint and makes themselves known to us helping them figure out where are you seated at the table and how can the rest of us know you and encourage you and promote love and good works that the Father has given you to do. What would that look like? Oh my goodness. There's just no end to the spiritual potential of hundreds of people who band together to do that. What if the ratio flipped? What if instead of 20% of the people doing 80% of the giving, what if 80% of a church were givers? While more people were being born into the family and being raised spiritually and grown through these first two phases. What if everyone who called a church family said, yes, it is much more difficult to meet habitually and intentionally with the small group of people than it is to come on Sunday mornings? But I will make my time and I will make my talent available to a few other people to grow myself and to help them grow along with me. That's what a small group looks like. And as I look at our church and I know our church, I'm back as the senior pastor now, but I was on staff many years ago. The one hurdle we will face that might kill this whole idea is a widespread unwillingness to invest the time. Because we work hard to make our church services about an hour and 15, an hour and 20 minutes long. There's not a lot of time required. The offering plate goes by. No one's sending you bills. No one's standing over you going, don't you think it's about time? How long have you been coming here anyway? There's none of that. What we're doing right now is scriptural, it's God-ordained, it's part of God's plan, but it's the easiest thing we do all week. 
coming together intentionally to know one another, to consider each other, as another translation says, and to spur each other on to love and good works, that takes some vulnerability. That takes some time. That takes some openness. That takes some inconvenience. Because you won't always feel like meeting with a group. A lot of you won't want to be known in that way because you won't want to show the weak side that God has still not developed in your life. You won't want it. Recently, I did a a wedding from two people who are walking in sobriety now for years. The most moving part came at the reception when their sponsors each spoke of things they had shared with them. And I thought to myself, you know, this is a snapshot of what it looks like to disciple each other. Because these two, they're not fooling that person over there. They are known and they are going to hear the truth if they stray very far at all. Now, the church isn't one big recovery group. It's not at all. It's a family. Where those in these chairs take some spiritual time and responsibility for the people seated at the rest of the table and help them take the next step with Jesus. Could I close the service by asking you to pull out this card and consider what your next step might be? Would you look at the top of that? It says, my next steps. I am putting my faith in Jesus for salvation. That's spiritual birth. I haven't taken the time. It's not the purpose of this particular Bible message to tell you how God loves you and sent his son to die for your sins, but he did. And when you trust him, he gives you new life, as Katie told you in that video testimony. He brings you into God's family. Maybe the second box applies, and you want to know what that means to follow Christ. But today's boxes, the things we've been talking about today for spiritual children involve these kinds of commitments. First, I want to be a giver. I've been seated at the table, but I haven't wondered or worried very much. I haven't given much to make sure that the table gets served. I want to change that. I want to be a giver. Or I want to volunteer to serve others. And you do that by connecting in a group, the third box. Which one of those represents a growing maturity? All of them. That's the point. When you're Growing into maturity, you don't pick and choose. You embrace the whole thing. You give your time and you give your talent and you give your treasure. You give yourself to other people to help them grow because the defining characteristic is this. Growing up means loving and supporting your fellow disciples and spiritual children grow up when they move from being consumers to being contributors. That's the difference. Everybody knows a child is there in that season of life primarily to consume. Things have to be given to him and things have to be done for him. And that is a beautiful, joyful season of life. But no family wants their kids to be here forever. And neither does your heavenly father. So could I invite you to a moment of prayer where you ask your heavenly father what your next step is? He wants every single one of us to move from consuming to contributing. Would you pray with me, please? Could I ask you to bow your head? Where are you with Jesus? Are you following him? If not, can I invite you in his name to give your life to him?
Ask him to be your savior and your forgiver. To let us know that you've done that. You have questions about that at the very least by marking that card. How you doing with your time? How you doing with your giving? How are you doing with the talents, the gifts that God gave you for the betterment of other people? Are those available to others? If not, if he's shown you gaps, if he's shown you corners you need to turn in following him, would you please tell your Heavenly Father about that right now? Would you tell Jesus, I want you to be the Lord. I want to take this next step with you. Take my eyes off myself. Move me out of selfishness into generously giving to others. Lord, what could happen, Jesus, if we all took you seriously and trusted you and overcame fears and hesitations and maybe lifetime habits, and we all got serious about growing up and bringing others along with us? God, I pray for those who are are most fearful about following you, to whom some of these concepts may be very, very challenging and difficult. Would you reassure them? Would you comfort them? And would you call them up and out, Lord, of that fear? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you're nearby next Sunday, we have two services. The first is at 9 a.m. and the second is at 10.30 a.m., both with the same Bible teaching. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.